says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to the first episode of the Tip Sheet in 2023. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020. In case of New Year, New Me, and by New Me, I mean the new kilos I've got after the uh, pig out across Christmas and New Year's. But joining me as always, my good mate, 60s. How did the uh, off-season and the Christmas period in particular treat you, big fella? Mate, first of all, Happy New Year to all of our listeners. But mm-hmm. as for any sort of uh, off-season, it really feels like we haven't had too much of an off-season because apart from a few days break over Christmas, New Year, just before Christmas, we sat down and had that chat with uh, Richard and Joy and Darren from the uh, Leagues Club about what was happening uh, from their perspective going forward. Speaking of that, we've also got a reminder that there is the general meeting that's being held at Parramatta Leagues Club in Jack's Bar and Grill tomorrow night, Wednesday the 18th at 7pm and also by video link at Vikings Sports Club that's voting on the proposed amalgamation between Paraleagues and Dural Country Club. Remember, as always, it's like anything, the more votes that members are able to cast, or the more member votes that we get, sorry, the more representative it is of the wishes of members. So we're not going to tell you which way to vote. We just want you to get there and vote at the uh, general meeting. Unfortunately, even though there is electronic voting on on club voting in the future, in this instance, because there is, it's voting on an amalgamation, there's another club involved, it's being done in person. You have to actually be at the meeting to vote. So just remember, 7pm start, you can either be at uh, Jack's Bar and Grill in Parramatta Leagues Club or at Viking Sports Club where they'll have a video link. Back on the football front, we've already had a return to Eels training. We've had the junior reps playing their first trials. It's all action, mate. It's all happening right away. And there was one affirmation for the tip sheet, which was to make it a little bit better, have some better company on there. And to do that, we're bringing in a special guest for the first episode. So welcome, Mary Kay. Happy New Year to you. How are you doing? Happy New Year to you both as well. It's great to be back on one of my favourite podcasts. I'm doing really well. I had a lovely summer, plenty of sun. Uh, plenty of surf, plenty of sand in my house as well, which wasn't <laughs> ideal. Uh, but now I'm sort of starting to gently get that itch ready for it, footy season it, to start again. It definitely what was your What feel. was your highlight? The highlight of your summer, Mary? It's a great question. What I would say is, uh, we do Boxing Day at my grandparents' place every single year, and my family and my mum's sister's family all come together. And my grandparents are getting a little bit older. They're well, but they're just getting a little bit older. So the opportunity to just all come together, we got a big family photo with all the grandkids and all the great grandkids. That was pretty special. I, I really enjoyed that. That's fantastic. It is um, it is a good time for catching up with family and, mm-hmm. and you know, just or maybe just having the time to do it. I know it's hectic in that lead up to Christmas. We're all looking for presents or doing that last minute shopping or over shopping as it might be when it comes to <laughs> food items for Christmas because I don't know about your house, but it was ridiculous yeah. at our place, the amount of food that was around. Yeah, that's 60s, always... I'm Greek. Enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that resonates with me with the Italian side of my family. There is just so much food, so much leftovers, and you practically hand out the doggy bags for the family to take home. There's still too much. 
So, oh, oh, and and by the way, you, you see, as you mentioned being Greek, a shout out to our other Greek mate in uh, Spiro Christopoulos. Mm-hmm. He's at the moment on a, a European adventure. I think he spent Christmas itself in Greece. So he's having the time of his life over there. He's probably due back soon. But if he's uh, listening at some stage, mate, happy new year to you. And we'll see you when you get back. All right, guys. Uh, with all the uh, happy sort of well givings and hellos done, let's talk some serious stuff. Usually we're starting with the Parramatta Eels, but there is some big housekeeping happening in the NRL. And unfortunately, it starts on a pretty somber note with the salary cap issue that's going on. RLPA, NRL, still at loggerheads. We thought it was resolved before Christmas, but it turned out to be a case of what we think was the NRL pushing a statement out without the RLPA agreeing to the cap figure. Where do we stand with this? Because, we, like you mentioned, Mary, the itch for football is starting to take over, but we haven't got the caps finalised. And football is – we record this on the 17th of January. Football is starting the second week of March, and we don't have the caps fixed up. What are teams to do? So you two have really picked – my favourite topic for me to come and talk on the podcast about. I'm actually really, really angry about this particular issue and I think it's extremely embarrassing for all the parties involved. So to backtrack, the CBA expired back in November and it is a fixed date that all parties are aware of. So how we are getting to a point where we have not negotiated and agreed a new CBA is deeply concerning and in my view, the moment that this CBA is done, all parties should start working towards agreeing the next one. Mm-hmm. And I guess why I'm particularly angry is because last year the NRL made the decision to go faster with the expansion of the NRLW, which is really exciting. We've got an extra four teams coming in, which will present challenges, of course, because we're growing a competition. We don't know when the new season's going to start. We don't have a salary cap. Every single player is off contract. So thank goodness we didn't have any serious injuries during the Rugby League World Cup because players were uncontracted and they're also uninsured. So if one of our female players gets injured right now, she is in a really, really precarious position. And then additionally, for the new clubs that are coming into the competition, how on earth are you meant to assemble a squad when a player is going to ask you so First of all, when does the season start? We don't know. How much are you going to be able to pay me? Well, we don't know that either. Like, how are they meant to talk, particularly after a Rugby League World Cup year when there was so much excitement about some of the players from overseas? You'd want a long lead in time to be able to talk to those players and the clubs basically have no information. It's embarrassing and to leave our players in such a financially precarious position, it's just deeply concerning for me. And it makes me wonder why on earth you would move towards expansion Mm. when we can't get these basic details sorted out. Yeah, it's completely unprofessional, really. And you, you spoke about the... And, and rightly so, that focus on where it leaves the players because that's we're heading towards expanded means also a longer season for the NRLW as well. Um, when are they starting? When, you know... I don't know. Ha- yeah. <laughs> no one knows. No. And, and then what you're also uh, looking at and all the clubs have to look at... Now, Parramatta, for example, had a model where... And their NRL operation was self-sufficient financially. They, with sponsorships and and what have you, that 
they weren't entering into any debt to field an NRLW team. So going forward, and especially with the new franchises, how how do you negotiate sponsorships from organisations if you can't even talk about what your roster is going to be mm. or when the competition is going to take place? This is for all the time that is wasted in, in putting together uh, the, the new um, agreement, the time is wasted for actually all these basics that, that Mary's just been talking about. It's yep. I'm, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. It's, you know, you almost, almost want to laugh at the stupidity of it all. It's absurd, isn't it? Oh, Craig, you mentioned footy starts on 2nd of March. We've got All-Stars games. Yes. We've got All-Stars games coming up. So, again, these players are putting their bodies at risk uninsured. It, honestly, it's, it's embarrassing and comes back to that position of, at the moment, with the financial position of most of our female athletes, we're putting them in a financially precarious position because we like watching them play footy. Yeah. Yeah. Not okay. And going back to the end of December when we had that one-sided, what turned out to be a one-sided announcement for the NRL, that sort of gave us an insight into what the skeleton of their framework would look like for a new deal where they said in the NRL the cap will be going up to $12.1 million for this year, a 25% increase for the men. For the women, it would be going up to 800 and, where is it, 884000 for the total team, which is a 153% increase, which is obviously a good step forwards there. Uh, but with expansion coming, uh, <laughs> you know, it, the... It just yeah, it's such a critical juncture for the NRLW. Uh, they're now left in limbo. It's insane. Yeah, and that's where I was talking about as well. You've got the, an increase in salary cap. You've got the models that the clubs need to work on, and those sort of funding models. It's it just doesn't happen. It you, you have to. I mean, it's there's not just having the plan, but there's executing the plan to to bring the operation together. And the more that we have this sort of dead time where nothing is in place, the harder it becomes yep. to have the best possible competition that you could have when the time, when, when the time gets closer. It's, oh, can you imagine? And, and, and I know that the, the NRL is impacted by not having a salary cap agreement, but can you imagine if the NRL itself was suddenly going to increase by four teams and didn't have a salary cap a yeah. few months away from their from the an expansion of four teams. Like they wouldn't allow that to happen. They they have a lead in time where the clubs can put it a, a new club can put its roster together like we've seen with the Dolphins. There's no lead in time for no. these new NRLW there's, clubs. There's gonna, scram, there's gonna be a mad scramble to find whoever they can to fill their teams. And the lead time, of course, needs to be bigger for NRLW players because they're not full-time professional no, athletes. That's right. The West Tigers are looking at Ali Brigginshaw, for example. They can't start talking to Ali a month out, and I'm just using a very, very basic example. I don't think Ali Brigginshaw is going to the West Tigers. But they need to give Ali time to move her life from Brisbane yep. down to Campbelltown or down to Leichhardt for that period. It, it's just... It's just so hugely disrespectful, particularly when it comes to the NRLW, and that is not to minimise in any way, shape or form the uncertainty that some of our male players will be um, experiencing at the moment either. 
Yeah, and you know, I just said that there's four new franchises. In essence, there's ten new franchises. Because it's yeah. correct with every, every player. Every year there is because you don't get multi-year contracts exactly. Yeah, it's, so, it beggars belief. What, but. what is fascinating from my perspective is that if this was another code in another country, it's particularly in America, you'd have the, the players talking about a potential strike with nothing being resolved heading into the season. They would just literally say, well, we're not going to play until it's resolved. But you haven't really heard that sort of agitation from the men and women in rugby league. But the more it sort of festers, you've got to wonder what sort of actions are coming because they need their future secured. They, they, they need do, to Sorry, John, to jump in, but I was just going to say, um, you're right. And I think it's interesting because apparently Mark Geyer was talking on Triple M earlier this week and he said, oh, just get it done. Just get them all in a room together and get it done. We've got a group of women who for the past 10 years basically have been told to make sacrifices, Mm -hmm. to do what they need to do for the good of the game. The women are not in a powerful position here. Uh, so I think that also plays into that idea of, you know, boycotting or, you know, they don't really lose anything. Do you know what I mean? They're not really getting paid that much. In fact, their lives probably become easier. But they really see themselves, I think, as custodians of the game and they want to do right by it. And I think they're being put in a really, really difficult position here. You, you, you can imagine if the clubs themselves ran their business like this, their license would be called into question, mm. wouldn't they? Like, yeah, it's, seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of hard to disagree with that take. I couldn't agree more with the takes that you've both had on that either. And I think for me, this is just a situation that I'm going to keep an eye on and happy to come back on the podcast mm. really soon, hopefully when we have some happier news. Yeah, I think we will need to have a follow-up uh, chat with you <laughs> when we get some resolution one way or the other, hopefully positive. Uh, but, yeah, we, we do for both the NRL and especially the NRLW, given what we, like we talked about with the expansion being put into such a critical juncture for its growth and its sustainability, they need to figure this out yesterday. And hopefully, as you say, we're gonna be talking, we'll be talking good news next time instead of, well, we might see Mary, Mary Kay fired up like never before. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be fired up throughout the season. Thank you both for having me, and um, I'm sure we'll talk really soon. Always a pleasure, Mary. Hope to have you on soon. All right, Craig, let's keep the show rolling. We've got plenty to talk about. Uh, Still with the NRL sort of level stuff here, uh, the NRL did put out an announcement last week on Thursday, the 12th of January, about the rule updates for the 2023 season, where they affirmed that there would be no new rules. But as we get into this, I sort of might posit the opposite there. I mean, in contention of that statement where some of these uh, adaptations are essentially new rules. So let's get into it. Amendments for the 2023 season. We start with grounding the ball, where tries will now be awarded if the ball rotates from the hand to the wrist or forearm, provided there is no obvious separation between ball and the hand or arm. This new, And essentially there's a disclaimer talking about how this new interpretation will allow further clarity for officials when adjudicating grounding, and they apply that to pretty much every amendment there. It's all about adding further clarity. This one, Craig, surely there's going to be some drama at some point in the season about what it is and isn't a grounding, even with the change of this rule. I, you know, I reckon this is opening up a bigger can of worms. I think rather than clarifying it or making it uh, easier for those circumstances in the past where you thought, okay, there wasn't really too much separation, that was a bit unfair to disallow the try. I can just see it swinging so far the other way where we look at a try scoring opportunity that looks like it's been completely botched where the ball looks to have run down, come out of the hand, run down the wrist, 
whatever the case may be, but it looks like it just looks so ugly. You know it hasn't been a proper grounding, but because there's this interpretation that's been made official that I, I can just see we're going to have real debate, real um, dramas. It's just going to be... You, you know it's bound to happen. Well, what I'm curious to see is that with this new uh, adaptation or variation of the rule, there is no emphasis on gripping the ball with the rotation. So if you lose possession via gripping, but you've still got it on your wrist or forearm, it would imply that they're going to award the try, which you you haven't got control of the ball. So I have to yeah. wait and see how they rule that on it. And I suppose the big caveat here is, are we going to be consistent on this? Like on a case-to-case basis, is it going to be policed the same way? I don't know. We have to wait and see. History tells us no. Uh, but yeah, this one could open up some more cans of worms. One rule that won't, though, I think, is the new 18th man or 18th player rule in the case of the NRLW. Uh, so we have an update to that where the number of failed head injury assessments, HIAs, will be reduced from three to two to trigger the activation of the 18th player. I think a lot of people will be happy with that. And once again, there's that caveat there where this will allow greater flexibility for clubs to lose multiple players to head injuries in a match. Uh, with the increasing understanding and emphasis of the damage that you know these head injuries are causing the players both short and long term this is a common sense change i think mate i think so too how far away do you think we are from adding a 19th oh, i was actually going to ask you surely we're not that far off a 19th player coming onto the bench too now uh, like i said the, these head injuries are serious business both short and long term and if we're going to be serious about uh being able, not just looking after the players but also the team's ability to field a player in a game uh, maybe the 19th player might be coming in sooner rather than later. I just feel that, that we're heading towards that, especially when we're we're seeing so many instances where there's two and three HIAs in a game. And as as you've said, it's it's because of the importance of looking after the players, we've seen lots of players that are ruled out from... Uh, there's Obviously, there's those injuries where it looks like it's obvious the player's not going to come back. But then there's those ones that are innocuous and then the announcement's made, yeah. no, he's failed his HIA. Yeah. And you go, wow, wow, I didn't see that coming. And when that can happen, I mean, how often do we see that it, you can just, it can just be one of those games that it just goes awful. It goes all wrong for a particular team. And even with bringing in the 18th player, if you've lost two or three players to HIA, your ability to cover other interchanges for the team is just going to be so much harder because we're not just talking like we're, we're talking about replacing for the HIA with having two injuries, but then you're dealing with other types of injuries that can happen during the game, which will rule players out anyway. So I just think it's, I think we have to be heading towards that activation of a 19th player as mm-hmm. well. So, and now whether that goes back to the old rules where you can uh, bring on a player that's played in another in another game. Yeah, now I know there's a duty of care there too, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and of course there are standalone games that happen anyway. So you probably can't get that scenario happening again. But um, yeah, it's. Look, I think it has to, and I think uh, most teams generally carry nineteen players anyway when they've got yes. an away trip, don't they? So uh, you'd, you'd like to think that there's and even even got... in home games these days, there's often a nineteenth player warming up, whatever. Like, yeah, 
whatever reason. Yeah, yeah well, I, I guess mainly because if you get a, a pre-match injury in the warm-up... Then you need someone to shift the 18th player after the yes. 18th man comes in. Yeah, Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. So, look, it's, it's not going to surprise that um, at some point down the track that we're going to have a scenario where a 19th player can be activated. It's not going to happen now, but I think we can see the writings on the wall. Yep, I agree. This next one's got me a bit myth, mate, because my understanding was this is how the rule was written for like the last few years, ever since the bunker was introduced. But now we have the intervention of bunker in foul play. The bunker may only intervene for acts of foul play, which it deems to be reportable. Uh, this change will ensure fewer needless stoppages while also confirming a firmer process around foul play intervention. I thought that was how the rule was written. My understanding watching every game was how, that was how the rule was being acted upon, but apparently not. Was the bunker given too much license to interfere in games? I'm the same as you, mate. I thought that that was always the case. Now, maybe that was unofficial. Maybe that was something as a rule of thumb that they operated by. At least I can say that it's we've got clarity around it. If that, if <laughs> if we can ever, if we can ever use the word clarity around the bunker, maybe we've got it with that. Uh, whether and whether it turns out to be that way, because how often do we see? cases where something is reported but shouldn't have been reported you know yeah so it's you know six of one half and a half a dozen of the other i I, i'm not going to say too much on that maybe i'm looking to find a way to criticize if i do (laughs) so new year new me we're going to be good boys here we'll just move on (laughs) okay so now we get to probably the real meat and potatoes of it all starting with the captain's challenge i think we all saw this one coming following the debacle that was the West Tigers versus North Queensland Cowboys uh, sort of last play scramble that resulted in a, a non-challenge because of the way the rules were written. Now we have a challenge may be initiated after the referee blows his whistle to stop play rather than only after a decision resulting in a structured restart. Uh, decisions which cannot be challenged will continue to include forward passes, roll balls and discretionary penalties including 10-metre offside ruck infringements relating to the play-the-ball speed, as well as being tackled into touch after held calls and descent. Now we've got this the follow-up uh, statement here, which is the real sort of uh, West Tigers clause, if you will. A challenge can be made following the final play in each half, provided the referee has not already called half or full-time. The changes will add further clarity for fans, broadcasters, clubs and players around when a captain's challenge can and cannot be initiated. There's that little caveat clause I was telling you about. So, yeah, this one obviously done in uh, retrospect to the debacle that we saw play out in that game where the Tigers were robbed of a rather improbable victory against the uh, high-flying Cowboys. Uh, I'm just curious as to what... uh, I'm trying to think of scenarios where the actual overall meta change there about uh, when the referee blows his whistle stop play rather than a structured start. Uh, What what does that now change? Because structured start would mean uh, there was a scrum, play the ball penalty, right? Those sort of things where the ball has been put back into play off a set uh, restart. Uh, but what difference does that mean now if he stops his... So if he stops whistle... To, if he blows whistle stop play, that would include injury timeouts or injury stoppages. So, I, I mean, the cynic, the cynic in me says that there's now a greater emphasis to maybe uh, go down for an injury to, or to get a captain's challenge. Is that, is that how I'm reading it now? Uh, mate, I'm, to be honest... I think they need clarity about what they mean by that. Uh, so, it's so yeah, blood, I, I'm, blood bin, uh, and play going down for a, a head injury or just an injury in general. As long as the trainer comes out and asks the referee to stop play, 
Um, but yeah, so was, it's it's the word is a structure. It has to be a structured restart. Pre- previously, previously it was it, you, you could only challenge off a structured restart. So scrums, penalties, where the the ball has been like play has been stopped, resulting in a set restart. But now, whenever yep. the referee blows his whistle to stop play, providing that it isn't the half or full time whistle, uh, you can challenge a play. So that would imply that injury stoppages now allow captains to challenge. And yep. like I said, that's how I did. Yep. The cynic in that's me, how I the cynic in me sees this as an easy loophole for teams to uh, attack. Anyway, well, if that if that is the case, then y- you have to think about whether. You've got someone that is, as you suggested, well, we had that scenario before where you would get a player who would uh, come in and commit a penalty to the, get a the stoppage. Cynical, the cynical penalty, that's right, yeah. Yeah, the cynical penalty. Which they pat, they actually patched that mid-season after the, our game against the Gold Coast Titans, I want to say, or somewhere yeah. around that, where they made it that if you give away a cynical penalty, you can no longer challenge the play. Because that last penalty is the only challenge. The one you give away becomes the only challengeable for offense to, for the referee. So, what what's their guard against yeah. feigning injury? Yep. I mean, and this is a conversation you have in so many different codes, right? Soccer or football, uh, as you know, Europeans call it. That's a huge issue there. Simulation uh, and the feigning of injury to get penalties, uh, which obviously isn't the same as a captain's challenge, but it, it, it's sort of adjacent. When you talk about faked injuries, it is so hard to police it. The other thing, too, is talking about at the conclusion of a game, and you said it's it cannot be after the referee has blown full time. So if you've got a, a mad scramble last play, are you going to get players or captains going charging across to the referee saying, don't blow full time, don't blow full time? Mm we intend to challenge is that the is that yeah. the, the way that they I'm will not, have to go about it yeah it's going to be one of those drama laden games that we find out the verdict on that because uh, does the referee look to both captains and say either of you like the challenge if not I'm blowing full time or do he just proceed as normal start blowing full time and the cap, like you said the captain's racing across the field screaming out challenge 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 well you wouldn't you can't imagine that they're going to check with captains. Is it okay if I blow full time? Because, or I'm about to blow full time. Is there are there any challenges? Because before, I mean, you know the scenario before where there's always that little bit of controversy around when the referee blows that final whistle about whether the whether the last play has actually started and he's waiting for that last play to finish. A scrums packing down, you know, all those scenarios where whether the referee lets it play out from that point or not is always contentious. Mm-hmm. So I just, but then by the same token, you think if they don't have a procedure in place around it, then you're going to get inconsistency. Yep. So I guess what I'd be looking for there is what will be their procedure around that? Is it just going to be that the referees are going to blow full-time as they normally did? And if you don't get your your challenge in before that full-time uh, whistle is blown, then that's bad luck. Uh, and I guess if a team has a challenge up their sleeve, the captain's going to go running in at 
if there's a, a little bit of doubt around a last play, yeah. whether it's you know the opposition they're desperate to get a penalty from the uh, against the opposition, you can imagine someone's going to go in charging and just say challenge, and I guess why not if they've got a challenge up their sleeve and it just goes to waste. <sighs> Then again, I suppose they could have always done that. Yeah. So yeah, so we have to wait and see how this one plays out in terms of the yeah. mechanics for the the full and half time uh, calls. But in terms of the general play thing, hopefully we don't see the cynical use of injuries to facilitate captains' challenges. But given what we've seen in the past, it's almost certain that it's going to happen at some point. Uh, so yeah. we, we move on to the next one, which is going to be a big one, sixties. So after a full season of watching teams trap balls at the base of the scrum and the whole mess that comes from offside defenders following it, the NRL has said we've had enough of that. And they've made a, a change which I would argue, going back to my initial statement on this uh, NRL release, would be an actual rule change rather than a, an update. Uh, offside infringements at scrums now reads, a full penalty will be awarded rather than a set restart, which we saw the six again calls, for offside scrum infringements by the defensive team anywhere on the field. Uh, so we often saw teams getting baited to race up offside even when the ball wasn't held at the base of scrum, some teams were just being overzealous, figuring that giving away the uh, six again was worth it on the base that you might not get called. But on the flip side now, we have the non-infringing team uh, will retain the option of repacking the scrum or taking the award penalty, so that stays true. But on the uh, for the team in possession, we see any team which deliberately locks the ball into the scrum to trap defenders in an offside position will also be penalised. So not, not just a loss of possession via a scrum, which you t- back in the past it used to be when you had a scrum infringement, you'd lose a scrum feed. Uh, I'm talking back, going back a bit there. But now you're seeing a full-on penalty in possession if you the referee deems you're baiting the offence offside by trapping the ball at the lock forward's feet. What a mess. What an absolute mess. This is one of those rules that is stupid. It is just stupid because they've done a 180 on this. If you don't want a penalty from uh, the scrum where the the team locks the ball in, then that's one thing. But to actually turn it around and penalise the team, then that's completely different. It's Then it comes down to that interpretation about what's deliberate and what's not deliberate. Mm -hmm. You can see a scenario where we see it anyway, where the – the lock or the second rower accidentally kicks the ball back into the scrum. So it's it's pinballing around for a second or two. Yeah. Yeah. And will you get a referee making the dubious call that the team is locking the ball in the scrum? There is no advantage to them locking the ball in the scrum now. So why would they do that deliberate? They're not going to do that deliberately for any reason because they're not going to get an offside penalty from it. In essence, the the change in interpretation where you're not going to get a penalty for locking the ball in the scrum should theoretically completely remove teams locking the ball in the scrum. They get no advantage from it. Why you would want to turn around and then penalise them where the only likelihood of that eventuating in the first place, like locking it in there, was by accident. The the first team that gets penalised for that is probably going to have grounds to say we was robbed. Yeah, and the thing is, it's not even a change of scrum possession. It's a full penalty. So you're talking about 30, 40-minute touch finders, game-winning penalty shots in certain situations. Yeah. Like just, yeah, I don't know. It just seems 
I I found the uh, I, the constant use of trapping the ball at lock forward frustrating as a neutral, not just in Parramatta games, but watching it because it just became a bit mundane to watch every team trying to do it. Uh, but this probably wasn't the right way of going about fixing it. So I don't know. Yeah, the oh, look. I'm not a fan. The other thing I'm not a fan of with the scrum rules as well is that option for um, if they have to pack the scrum again that if there's another offside that they um, can send a player to the sin bin, isn't it? Is that the... No, that's right. Repeat. Uh, second infringement, which is why you saw a lot of teams repacking the uh, those scrums, can result in a sin bin. Yeah. See, that, that was the 2022 interpretation. <sighs> <laughs> it, it does feel at times like we are overcomplicating the game, making rules for the sake of rules, uh, changing rules for the sake of changing them. Uh, yeah. The, the and they've really disguised this one by saying there's no rule changes. Yeah. When in actuality there are rule changes. And These so, are this this one is a rule yeah, change. Yeah, significant to the, the, the structure of the meta game. The last two changes, sixties, we start with ten meter compliance in general plays. It looks like this year we're gonna see, at least for the opening month of plays as we sort of want to see uh, before it falls off, there's gonna be an emphasis on ten meter offside. Active defenders must have both feet in line or behind the referee when setting the ten meter defensive line. Referees will have the option of awarding a full penalty for multiple 10-meter breaches without requiring the mandatory use of the Simbin, which is probably a healthy update for the game. You don't have to Simbin someone after multiple infringements. You can just penalize a team. Referees can still use their Simbin if they consider the breaches to be deliberate or cynical. That makes sense. Uh, these changes will give further clarity to officials around what constitutes a breach of the rules. Uh, so this, I mean, this one is, is this even really an update outside of the non-Simbin penalty? Like this is literally uh, the ten meter update, the ten meter offside as it's intended. I think where it's been brought in is that there are teams who will, depending on where the player is positioned on the field, either have the um, the front foot behind the referee, uh, oh sorry, in line with the referee, or or in front of the referee. So they'll, you know it if they're looking to really get off the line uh, quick but not uh, give away a penalty, they'll be looking at having both feet behind the referee. If they're looking to push it a little bit in another part of the field where they they are quite happy to give away a six again, not quite happy, sorry, they're prepared to risk giving away a six again to put uh, defensive pressure on a team, well, they might they might stick the front foot in front of the ref and hope the ref doesn't pick it up. So I think, in essence, there's it it keeps it where I think that should have been the rule anyway. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, of course, I, the, I haven't got I haven't got I really don't have too much uh, on on the goal line. That means two feet on the goal line, which is always the rule. But you see so many shots of teams having just one foot in the goal line, one foot stepping out. Yeah. So how aggressively they police this will be interesting to see. But I sort of figure it to be, like I said, a, a four to f- sort of six-week crackdown before, as we've seen with all these other points of emphasis in recent years, it fades out and we return to sort of the status quo. Uh, final update is the adjudication of completed tackles. So we've seen a change to the mechanics of how a referee will uh, call a given tackle. Uh, previously, we had a call of held and release as separate identifiers for a tackle. Now the issue, referees will issue a single call of held release when a tackle is complete. Uh, this change will address unnecessary slowing of play the ball and improve game continuity. Uh, I suppose 
I think maybe this is sort of a reaction to forklift tackles and similar tackles where you sort of get a person held up into the held state and then drive them back as the release is being called and you're not strictly infringing because the tackle has uh, in the process being completed, whereas now with the single call of held or release meaning the same thing, uh, it means that tackles, once they're stopped, should be completed. There's some teams that have become very clever at the stand-up wrestle, hasn't True. there? Yep. Where, where rather than the wrestle taking place on the on the uh, turf, the uh, the the teams wrestle. They get a little bit of. They might get a little bit of a pushback as well. But the idea of that wrestle is to slow up the play of the ball yep. and to allow Reset the defenders to get back into into yeah back into line. So if it if it looks like the ball carrier is in some way able to still advance the ball or, or get the ball away, there's still movement in the tackle. The refs have been a bit slow to call held. So for mine, it's still a matter of when they call held rather than they're going to call held and release. I would have liked clarification as to when that held is going to be called because that to me is the the crux of the matter. Uh, Held and release, that stops that drive back. But for mine... Uh, how quickly you call held gets out will get out that stand up wrestle. Yeah, agreed. We've seen some teams get into, and uh, you did mention the the Penrith forklift tackle that they've really excelled in. That's one for people who aren't aware of it. The the technique is basically they they hold the player up, and then they get a sudden surge of driving them backwards, and that allows, first of all, their their own defensive line to be in an aggressive line position. And it also means that the team bringing the ball out have, have got to get back because it's often on that uh, kick return that they put that into and the, or the, and the one or two tackles after it. It's often employed within a team's own 25-metre zone, bringing the ball up off the line. And it means that the kick is being taken often around that 20 metre line because it takes the team four or five tackles to get barely to get past their 25. It's been part of Penrith's secrets to secret to success. Mm-hmm. As I said, they 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 stop the momentum and then they get that. You know, it's a it's a fine line between whether they've lifted the player off the ground because technically, the moment they lift the player off the, the ground, that's complete. supposed to be where the held is yeah. called. Um, now, if they get that hold and then release straight away, it's then that referee interpretation as to whether there's been already some momentum that's hard for the players to pull out of or, or not. Um, I knew that we'd get to a point where the forklift tackle would be what was targeted. They're not coming out and saying the forklift tackle's been targeted here, but you can bet that that's basically what it is because yeah. it's it's gone from just Penrith to a whole lot of other teams. You go to a game of football, even in lower grades, and you can hear the call out, the call going out forklift mm-hmm. as yes, the sir. as the the players have hit on that first or second tackle. You can hear reminders from their teammates forklift. So it's it's become a bit more widespread. So naturally, in comes in comes the interpretation change, not the rule change. No, the interpretation no. change. And so there was some common sense stuff in there, some stuff that's probably going to cause drama, pretty much uh, on par for the NRL, really. 
A bit of tinkering for sake of tinkering too. Uh, but we have to wait and see how it all plays out. Uh, I do like the concussion changes, the 18th player coming in with a greater leeway. But yeah, some of the other stuff does have you scratching your head. But that's for down the road 60s. I'm sure we'll have to talk about that when it does pop up one way or the other. Let's finally talk some Parramatta because there's been a lot of NRL, a lot of uh, serious stuff with the NRL. But let's talk some Eels. Let's start with the NRL. How's the boy, or how are the boys trending as we start the new year in 2023? And we sort of make that turn towards the business end of the preseason. Well, people who've been following the training reports would know that we're just starting to get into some serious contact opposed work, which is really, that's the part of the preseason that I thoroughly enjoy because, first of all, that satiates the uh, footy fix that I need. Uh, the pre-season always and, and off-season always feels far too long. So once they start getting into games of footy at training, first of all, I enjoy watching it. But secondly, I start to get a bit of an idea about how the team will shape up. Who's in? Who's really in serious contention to fight for a spot in that top 17? Who's lined up for any any positions where an opportunity actually exists. So we know that the Eels have got opportunities for players to win selection at centre, at back row, at lock and on the bench. They're the prime areas where an opportunity exists for a newcomer to come and force their way in, potentially. There's been real competition that's shown itself in these last few weeks. I'm I'm pretty confident that we're going to see someone like Matt Dury get the uh, a right edge position. I'm pretty confident that we will see Hopgood looking at uh, the 13 spot. Mm-hmm. Um, the backline positions is probably going to come down to fitness and availability because you have Simonson rehabbing, you have uh, Hayes Dunster rehabbing. So at the moment, you've probably got someone like Sean Russell who's ahead of the others because he's fit, he's been training, he's been training on the wing in the NRL team. The The others have not had that opportunity because they're working back from significant injury uh, Hayes Dunster might be a little bit ahead of Bailey in terms of when he's going to be available. But, geez, Hayes had such a major injury. It was a catastrophic injury. Pretty much everything oh, in the knee got done, yeah. You, you, I spoke to Hayes right at the start of the preseason, and he was personally aiming to be coming back for the trials. How... Whether that comes into fruition, I'm not too sure because they're only now, what, about four weeks away, three weeks away, the first of the trials, I think 11th of February, something like that. Mm -hmm. So whether he's ready for that, gee, that's going to be touch and go. He might be a chance of being available for selection around the start of the preseason, but you know, I shouldn't really speculate. No, and it's it's always best to leave it to the club to say when a player is going to be available or not available there. Uh, Bailey Simonson, well, he had his shoulder issue from the uh, from the grand final, and he's he's looking at um, 
I, I reckon he's uh, someone reported that he was going to be not going to be playing until halfway through the season. That, that was, a, I think, but, a Fox Sports report, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't be paying attention to that. But he's he's not going to be available for the trials. He's, I'd say, he he'd be unlikely for the very start of the season. But after that, I don't know. So he's got he's got a fair bit of his rehab journey to go. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I think you can. So I th- I'm literally prepared to lock Sean Russell in as that uh, Rouse Hill right edge, eh? Yes, it is. He's um, he's gone quite well outside Will Penasini in the uh, opposed work that they've done so far. I so mean, I, I know that Parramatta fans wouldn't have forgotten. But in the wider NRL spheres, sort of his really splashy start to the season was immediately lost because of that rib injury where he had to then battle through. You know, we talk about catastrophic injuries. He had pretty much half his chest collapsed in by uh, that particular incident. And he managed to do a good job getting back into reserve grade for that year and sort of pushing through and, and getting back into some form. So good to hear him getting back to what had him in that round one starting spot, 60s. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the interesting thing then becomes the bench because yep. if we... Let's ignore what's happening around Ryan Madison because I've still been looking for clarity there. I haven't been able to get any clarity about what's uh, if, he, if he can actually go back and accept the early guilty plea. Yeah, yeah. So the the eels the eels appealed him um, taking the suspension rather than the uh, paying the fine. I think the the Ryan wanted to t- pay the fine now and rather than be suspended. So, uh, but I think. Gee, he he plays so well coming off the bench, it's where he's he's coming specialty. off. He's still yeah. playing sixty minutes yep. uh, as a middle forward, which then frees up someone such as Hopgood to start at lock and play, and he could still play. And, and Maddo becomes part of the rotation of Junior and Reg, mm-hmm. uh, and I guess. There's that option that he could also be part of the uh, if they wanted to um, give a one of the back rowers a bit of a rest that he can he can fit Slide in there. To the edges. Yep. He, Maddo really looks bulked up, like bigger than he's ever looked. And when you see his frame, you think, well, yeah, you you can be playing prop with a frame like that, no risk at all, and. Then looking at the players outside of that, uh, Jack Murchie's really started to impress. He's, I, I'm almost as confident about locking him in to a bench spot. Um, and then we start to get that competition really going from there. Does another new starter like uh, Momosia get the chance to be on the bench. Now, he's got a bit of versatility. He could potentially cover back row, centre, middle. Yep. He, he's, he's, he's got that sort of frame and athleticism that he could do that. And that might make him almost like the Murata from before. Yeah. Now, maybe yep. he's not going to have someone like Murata's aggression, but maybe he's got that versatility when they're concerned about an injury to the back line. Do they select a backup dummy half, given the history of injuries for Josh Hodgson, uh, and whether they want to make sure that they give him a suitable rest through the 
um, through the season so that he's not playing 80-minute games and he's maybe playing 60-minute games instead. Do they go with another big unit, say, like off a Hickey Ogden? Well, if you want aggression, you're talking about the loss of Marauders aggression, that's probably the best replacement there. Ogden does bring the fire. I wasn't too sure. I, I saw on the official website that Ogden was listed at 106 kilos. <laughs> I think there's another digit. Yeah. They they, uh, sometimes yeah. the official measurements, especially when it comes to the weight, uh, these are very big boys, and sometimes they're not necessarily reported as what they're actually at, because 106, maybe he is, but he is a big unit like and fit. So yeah. I, I highly doubt he's 106. No, no. I mean, you, once you're talking about the the uh, fellas that are just over a hundred kilos, they're they're not uh, going to be someone who's who looks like a big unit, just you know, like he does. And he he's well over six foot as well. So, uh, but he's he's one of these players that. I think uh, how can I put it? There's you know there's there's trainers and there's players. There's fellas who yeah trainers and gamers yeah guys guys that show that up on the the paddock but don't necessarily train well and guys that can absolutely dominate the training paddock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's now, and I want to clarify with this too because there's there's blokes there who are absolute machines when it comes to the conditioning work and the, just the, and, and don't get me wrong. There is a major advantage of being super fit because <laughs> it means you're going to compete in everything that you're doing out there. And there are players who, you know, are just nonstop in a game and they will make those 1% of plays because they've got the, they've got the fitness to make those 1% plays. Then you've got the other fellas who, are just real match hardened good players and you can rely on them to perform in a match. And then you've got the others who their fitness just isn't up to stand to first grade standard. So they'd never get selected. Um, Ogden to me, whenever it switches to footy at training, he switches on, you know, he gets done what he needs to get done on the, from conditioning point of view, don't get me wrong. He's not tailed off or anything like that. But he's – it's almost like his um, his body language completely changes. Like when it's – when he's doing conditioning work, he looks like a big bloke who's who's fighting hard to do the conditioning work, if you know what I mean, yeah, like yeah. the athleticism. Yeah. But then it, it's almost like he carries himself differently as soon as it's in the football mode. As soon as it's in the football mode, he looks athletic. He looks agile. Yeah. And I'm, that might sound like a strange thing to try to describe, but that's the that's the best way I can describe Ogden because he, he like he literally grows another leg as soon as they, they get into the footy. So I, I I've been I've been impressed with what I've seen in the uh in the opposed work that they've done. And for mine, just in my own selections it's almost like he's come out of left field at the at this later juncture in the preseason to say, "Hey, you can select me." Mm-hmm. So 
and then of course you've got the other the other um big fella that would uh, want to be putting himself in the mix in Wiramu. So what could Wiramu be? We've we've seen the the impact that he's had in uh, the Reggies with those defensive hits. Uh, you wouldn't want to be on the <laughs> receiving end of those. That shot that he put on that poor South Sydney player yeah. last year, I don't think I've seen anything as, as well. As the sound was le- the legally sound was, cleanly violent as that hit. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, it, it's, I'm not quite sure where, where they're going to go. If they cover, bring in cover for um, Hodgson, does that mean that Mitch Rain gets a, a shot? Um, the other boys that can cover the the dummy half position in uh, Brendan Hands and uh, Jaden Yates, they're not in the top 30. And BA's already signalled that he doesn't want Jake to be a bench player. He doesn't feel that's going to benefit his development in any way. He wants him running a team in in New South Wales Cup. So you might occasionally see him on the NRL bench, but he's not going to give him a year of only playing 10 or 15 minutes off the bench. So, um, yeah, which direction he goes, I I don't know. And the other newcomer, of course, uh, Dejan Arcee, He's been fitting in at a whole range of positions. Sometimes he's he's had the odd occasion in the Haas, out at the centre, out on the wing. Um, yeah, so he 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 looks like he's going to be almost our equivalent from um, last year of Hayes Perham. Mm-hmm. You know that sort of floating around yeah. utility back, back back line Swiss, uh, Swiss Army knife. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. It look, it's it's interesting. I think that overall, my impression is that the squad itself is a bit stronger than last year. Well, and that, one fly, not, that one flies in the face of popular opinions, doesn't it? That's interesting. Yeah, I I honestly believe that because with with all of the players that we've lost. You're talking about players who, let's face it, were were developed by the Eels. Even someone who hit the ground running like Ice, he hit the ground running at Parramatta in career best form. Mm-hmm. He, he he never played like that at the Warriors. He was instantly like one of the top back rowers in the NRL, and. I believe that there's the potential for someone like uh, Matt Dury well, to be given that similar opportunity. I, I got to then- say, I was, and you know, you know that we were Matt Dury troopers from day one when he was a Parramatta junior, and we were fairly livid when he was uh, poached away by the Bulldogs. I'm very happy to have him back in the right colours. Uh, I think he could be a, a difference maker for us. Yeah, and because the other interesting one too becomes uh, Tony Mattaelli. Because he's also is a development contract, which means that he's not going to be eligible to play before round ten, unless you know they seek exemption or they upgrade him. So he, but he's someone as well that I've earmarked for a, an NRL debut at some stage. Mm-hmm. Now he's an edge player, also. Uh, so I, 
I think we've got some really good depth on those edges. Perhaps options on the bench that weren't there last year in terms of uh, both depth and perhaps even impact. Yes, yeah. And, you know, there's there's some good talent there that doesn't have a top 30 contract. It's quite astounding just to read through some of the, the names of the players that don't have that, a top 30 deal. Like Matt Komalafi, uh, the uh, hyphen himself, Jonte Jr., Beetham Misa, mm-hmm. Jaden Yates, Brendan Hands, Dan Keir has been outstanding uh, for a, a big forward. The level of fitness he's arrived at was he, – he's done exceptionally well. Jaden Yates is the one that's the freak. He's he's almost Gutho-esque in his work with conditioning. Uh, a lot of people are forgetting Tavita Tomopanu, who had a, a – I would say a lower grade breakout season last year. Yeah, considering he was flag eligible, he was just this consistent force in the cup. Just guaranteed to get you 100 metres and, and 25, 30 tackles every week, regardless yep. of the level of opposition. Yeah, Luca Moretti's been there uh, doing the preseason again. Uh, we've seen the recent arrival of uh, Isaac Lumi Lumi, mm-hmm. who's uh, out there um, on the wing and. Um, Probably, I would think likely to be on a second tier deal with the Eels. Young and then Sam. you've got then you've got players that aren't doing the preseason who will um, progress into playing some New South Wales Cup this year that were in the uh, Jersey flag for most of last year, like Corey Fenning and Jack Colavardi. Mm-hmm. So they're still around the place. So um, the ones that we that we have missed is uh, Eliel Zakim, who's moved on to the Roosters, and uh, Ryan Jones, who's taken up a Q-Cup contract. And we also had uh, Dan Torre Louis, who's gone back to the Cowboys system. Correct. So So, um, There's been some turnover, which you expect, uh, but I think that the uh, Cup's in a good position now. Nathan Kalis at the helm with uh, a good blend of experience and young talent there. Yeah, and... What's been really good this year as well is that, and and people may or may not be aware of this, but it's really been a a, a one-club philosophy in action because you've had the SG ball and the Jersey flag boys that uh, were part of the Jets squad who came up and they did their segment of the NRL preseason prior to Christmas. They went back, they would go and also then train as a group with the Jersey Fleg under uh, Coach Craig Brennan there. You then had BA and Nathan Kalis going to Jersey Fleg training and uh, coaching the Jersey Fleg squad on uh, a couple of nights a week. So they, I think BA was involved in doing uh, some of the... Um, the the general shapes that the Eels uh, work on in attack. You had Kalis was doing some work in the gym and uh, and defence work as well. So they've got that that continuity there. Some of the boys that were uh, were going to be playing uh, New South Wales Cup that weren't uh, able to train full-time. They were training with the Jersey Flag, so you had that link there. You got Nathan Kalis as the Jersey – as the um, – New South Wales Cup coach who's got that familiarity with the the fellas who are in the NRL squad that are going to play New South Wales Cup. He's got the familiarity with the boys 
that are training with the jersey flag that might be elevated or the jersey flag that um, that are training with them because that's the best option for them in the preseason is to train with the jersey flag. Yeah. But they won't. They're too old to play jersey flag, but they're getting that training in with the uh, within the Parramatta system. It's just. Um, you can see, as you like, you mentioned about Nathan Kalis, but you can see that you've got that um, all of the processes that you want the players to be familiar with, to trust. They're being instilled in them from the lower grades all the way through to NRL, yeah. and you're getting that consistency. And um, yeah, they're very. Uh, I think they're very happy with the the way that they've got things structured there at the club at the moment. So it looks like the club's trending in the right direction across the NRL New South Wales Cup and Jersey flag 60s. Obviously, we're going to get a bit more clarity on the flag once we get a look at them in the trials in the coming weeks. Uh, there's still a lot to die, uh, break down there as they get to their final squad and then uh, which players are going to be playing ball and flag and whatnot there. But speaking of the SG ball... Oh, can I just say, it's, a, it's, it's a, an exciting... Uh, group of players there. They've uh, they haven't cut any players or anything like that in the jersey flag. Um, you you were there for one of the training sessions. Uh, Forty. Um, I caught the the uh, a, a training session before that. Um, we've got a we're very familiar with Craig Brennan mm-hmm. through his his time coaching at, at junior rep level, and um, we we thank him for. Uh, making himself available for um, helping our familiarity yes, sir. with the, the Jersey flag players so that we can cover that uh, the Jersey flag matches with a little bit of knowledge when we do. Yeah, so we are quite uh, quite excited to cover the Jersey flag this year. There's going to be a good blend of returning players, new faces, and then young prospects from the system progressing. Uh, but, yeah, we have to wait. Is it the Penrith trial going to be their first hit out for us, or are they playing sooner than that? I'm pretty sure that the that you're looking at the the trials happening around the same time as New South Wales Cup and the okay. and the NRL for for the Jersey flag because the competition starts at the same time. Yeah, they fall. They, they sort of yeah. fall into the same alignment, but they don't quite. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I mentioned the SG Ball Sixties. We'll wrap up the uh, program with a recap of what we got up to on the weekend because it was a very very sunny day out at Kellyville where the Eels hosted the Bulldogs in a junior rep trials uh, or set of trials in the junior rep sorry across Tasha Gale Harold Matthews and SG Ball uh, I think the Bulldogs end up winning the day two games to one for what it's worth in trials uh, taking back uh, the honours in the Tasha Gale and SG Ball while the Eels were very impressive in the Harold Matthews what, do you, what did you make of those three games those three teams that we saw and I suppose our opposition too because honestly the Bulldogs were quite impressive the Bulldogs impressed me about as much as I've seen as much as any team has ever impressed me in trials we have traditionally faced a fired up Bulldogs in the Harold Mats and the SG Ball that just goes without saying they've some of their performances where they've given us maybe not a shellacking but even when we've been expecting a strong season from the uh, junior rep teams They've made it tough for us. And even seasons where we've gone on to win or play in the grand final, they've still given us a tough trial. This was a little bit different, especially in the Tasha Gale for a start. The Tasha Gale 
performance from the Bulldogs. I, I don't know about you, mate, but I'm struggling to think of a more impressive uh, game in the Tasha Gale. Yeah, they, they played with the sort of speed and aggression that you, you don't expect, not just Tasha Gale, but consistently in junior reps. They came out really fired up, played with great shape, great structure, getting downhill consistently. And uh, it is no surprise they end up running away with the win. I think I had well, my my notes were I don't want to say dubious, but given the the weather conditions, it was very hot. I had us down as uh, where are we here? Eight tries to one uh, losers in this game, and we did squander quite a few scoring opportunities. I had us uh, as missing two or three scoring chances, but at the same token. Uh, the dogs were very, very dominant in this game. They controlled the rock. They shifted the ball really well. Uh, they were just popping up in numbers, uh, pushing the post-contact meters. They just played a really, really strong game. Yeah, I'm not even sure that if the Eels had have scored those tries that it was going to impact momentum in no, any way. No, it would have just been academic to the scoreboard. It would have looked better yeah. in that regard. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're talking about tries that came at different points in the game they just weren't momentum shifters because the nature of the trials is that there wasn't uh, any goal kicks that were taken. So it was, you're always going to be um, going from the position of score in the try to um, a kickoff that, that was happening. You know, the Bulldogs, when the Eels bombed the try, the Bulldogs were, happened to bring it off their own line. Yeah. So they didn't really they you know they were on the back foot when the Eels um didn't score the try but they still were able to march the ball downfield in impressive fashion. They just as you said just the the aggressive running of the football. Uh, even even some of the light, lighter weight players they, what a I think it was a winger was the lighter weight winger that was just charging yeah, in. Yeah, just fierce. And it, yeah. just, it just shows you what you know confidence and you know, belief can do in a game. For the Eels 60s, I mean, obviously you don't want to be losing 8-1, but that's why you have trials. Um, it certainly wasn't all doom and gloom. I thought there were some nice sparks from both Talara Bamblet and fullback slash half Debbie Dewey, uh, or Debbie Dwyer, he always get that mistaken. Uh, I thought they were both good at times, given our limited possession and, and territorial issues. I thought they had nice flashes, but just couldn't quite bring the team with them uh, to challenge the Bulldogs in better positions. Uh Left centre, Caitlin Pearden uh, had a nice real, uh, run down the left edge at one point. That was one of those squander opportunities where the final pass got grasped. And in the middle, I, I liked a uh, returning prop, uh, Mela Akualala. I thought she fought really hard uh, in that initial uh, opening period where the dogs had all the ascendancy, but she was tackling herself, uh, tackling them relentlessly. So it, it wasn't like there wasn't anything to salvage out of this game, 60s, and I think they'll be a lot better moving into their next trial. I think what might have disappointed Coach Ryan Walker was there were times where you'd say that the defensive attitude wasn't what yeah. he demanded. Yeah, the the left edge got caught out for the first couple of tries, and then after that we got very loose around the ruck on the goal line. The, the dogs had a lot of short-range, relatively simple crashovers, and that's how they cashed in, I think, their next three tries. Uh, so there's there's definitely some stuff to go back to the... Uh, drawing board and work on and they'll definitely be coaching up on the footage of this game but we know this team's got plenty of talent in it and I think this was a case of a pretty impressive dogs outfit playing essentially perfect football or near perfect football and the Eels having a, a lot of meat left on the bone there it, there was very few missed opportunities in terms of yeah, the Bulldogs they, and 
their combinations, mate, they just looked like they'd been playing together as a unit for years. For a team that That's... ran seventh, I think, last year, we, we yeah. figured. So they've obviously made some significant adjustments and whether it's recruitment, development, all that combination of things. And they've done, at this stage, it's obviously just a trial, but they look to be one of the contenders this year. So well done to Canterbury. Yeah, well, you'd, you'd look at something like that and you we've seen enough trials to know that you, you can almost pick up someone who's just had a good trial and it's not necessarily going to be something that'll transfer. Indicative of regular season. season performance, exactly. Yeah, but that, that looked like a finals-bound team, Yeah, the, the Bulldogs. They just, they just looked so uh, well-drilled, um, so positive in their play. Uh, there just was there was no hesitancy about anything that they did. Some of the passes that stuck were phenomenal, and I mean that might be where you might start to get a few drops during the season, and maybe they're not going to score eight tries in every game. But you just sense that the way they were prepared to run onto the ball, and that was really what it was about. They just never seemed to be uh, on the back foot at any stage. It was always hitting that ball up, positive, everything was positive about what they did. If you're a Bulldog supporter and you, you came away from that, you would have been you would have been very happy. As Eels supporters, we came away from that and go, we know we can play a lot better than that. Yeah. And that's yeah. and that's probably the main takes. But uh if the intensity was brought by the Bulldogs in the Tasha Gale, we flipped the the script in the Harold Matthews sixties where the Eels were very, very impressive. And I, I dare say that the final uh, score line of seven tries to four doesn't really reflect how dominant we were when the two first teams or the two first units were on the field in the first half. Uh, it was 5-0 at Oranges, uh, and it all started with the forwards. I thought the combination of uh, Mikhail Tito, Jordan Uta, Tyson Sangalang, and Josiah Finaluta, they really set the tone on both sides of the ball. They were thumping them in defense. They were running hard and punishing uh, with the ball in hand, and just the rest of the team fed off it. Uh, wasn't Tito a revelation with his aggression? Oh, my aggr- goodness. Yeah, he just he just ripped in and really was the flag carrier, wasn't he? He just led the banner and the boys came with him. Uh, halfback Lorenzo Talatina, he looked really good. I mean, obviously any halfback that's playing off a strong platform is going to be better, but he was popping up on and off the ball everywhere. Dummy half Zetis Muagatutia, who is a big, tall, rangy utility player in, in the past, younger brother of Larry, uh, he looked at home. You wouldn't have known that he was a guy playing wing and centre last year as the utility back. He looked at home yeah. at dummy half. So that, that was really positive for the Eels. He scored a nice try near the goal line. And then, uh, so I wrote about it. All the forwards brought the thunder, but the back line had a mix of both uh, power and class. You had the centres, Lucius Maliga and uh, young Lachlan Feller, there's a, a familiar name for Parramatta fans. They were both very aggressive in the centre spots. Uh, Lachlan Vela jamming aggressively and effectively in defense. But then Dom Ferruja, Corey Lay, the fullback, they both brought the class. And uh, the other winger too, Rokasuka also had a really nice involvement where he linked up with uh, Dom Ferruja to end up scoring a, a massive counter-attacking trial for clearing kick. So the back line had a great balance there. Uh, and then the interchange forwards, I, I think that the starting team is pretty much set on what we saw 60s. But I think there's some guys that also put their hands up there uh, for different reasons, I thought uh, Anthony Abdo brought a nice work rate. Uh, you had Ocean Vivella who brought a bit of impact. Uh, Logan Hua Hua, 
uh, we had fantastic talk working as the uh, backup fullback. His communications were actually top-notch. And then Jack Nicholas, who played both edge and centre, nabbed the double, one off a really nicely angled run as a back row on the left edge, and then he had a big uh, scoop and score for about 85, 90 metres, uh, playing right centre. So the, the boys were very good across the park. And I think if you talk about, you know, reading trial form and, and what it means to the regular season, but they sort of have positioned themselves to be uh, a pretty good team in this upcoming Harold Matthews campaign. Yeah, how good was that long-range try? When you, it was almost like uh, Gutho-esque in that he hit his top pace and was seemed to be able to carry his top pace, which probably when you're looking at fast outside backs, maybe it wasn't as fast as someone else's top pace, but because he seemed to be maintaining it for the, the length of the yeah. field, I kept waiting for someone to well, run the, him down. There was number 30 from the dogs in the other side of the field who was mowing him down for about 30 metres, so good acceleration, then just couldn't get within that uh, sort of last 10 metres of him to make the tackle. Yeah, yeah. so that was, that was really good. Matt, you, you mentioned uh, the, the fullbacks, uh, Corey Lee, he was impressive during his very, time on the field. Very smooth operator. Yeah, yeah. He, he fairly glided across yep. the field and just looked looked like he he'd been a part of the team for a very long time. Yep. And then when he went off the field, they did a positional switch and put uh, Dom Ferruja to uh, fullback, and Dom had started on the left wing. And we'd seen a little bit of Dom last year, and uh, he's he's a, a tall unit and uh, very athletic, and he then set up a try in the uh, to was it to Lorenzo? The, was yes, Lorenzo uh, the I one think, that backed think, him up for the try? Was it Lorenzo but, or Junior Fagalele? Uh, one of the two uh, that backed up, and it was just quality halves work off the ball as you or getting on the ball rather from an off the ball position. So yeah, really, really. I mean, this is a team that is very settled. Uh, is quite. It looks like they're quite confident in what their starting thirteen is, and they've also got a little bit to offer from outside the starting thirteen too, off the bench and outside that. There's some guys that are going to be pressing their claims. Yeah, yeah, um, but uh, we did uh, finish up with the loss. To yeah, the we. we it, it's fascinating too because you go from a team as I just mentioned that seems very settled, very comfortable and confident in knowing who's playing what positions to a team that has a lot of experimentation going on. Uh, in the SG ball, the Eels went down six tries to two. Uh, it was probably maybe a little bit closer than the score I suggested because the Eels did hit back strongly at one point, but the Dogs scored a late, a late couple of tries to blow it out to the six to two, so it was probably closer to the four tries to two for most of the contest. Uh, but the Dogs looked pretty sharp in this grade too. No uh, no shocks there. They were top five or six in the regular season then made it through to the grand final qualifier last season, so you know they're, they're you know, serious chop there. Uh, but looking at this game, 60s, uh, I really like the starting middles. I really like some of the bench middles. I think there's a good framework there. Uh, guys like uh, Lance Fall, Lima, Sam Torvati, Kobe Herford, Jack Burrows, I think they were all very strong on the day. Unfortunately for Lance, I think he got a cork on his leg because he was absolutely ripping in at that point before he got sidelined. Uh, but experimentation was sort of like the sub-theme of the day. You had Charlie Geimer, who we're big fans of, and he's been working really hard in the preseason. He's making a transition from centre to not just edge, but maybe even lock forward. He played lock in this game, and you saw flashes of what he could possibly do and what he could bring to the team. But on the flip side, you also have that transition leading to some of the blemishes and, and struggles that come there because you go from centre 
where it's not like you're cruising, but to lock forward, arguably the most challenging defensive role in the game in terms of aerobic conditioning. You're doing so much work. You're doing so much off the ball work. You know, you're you're the fulcrum linking up between halves and back line. And there was, you know, a handful of errors there and just, you know, uh, sort of sucking in at times, which I expected. But you still got to see some really cool stuff from Charlie there. And then a dummy half, you had a couple of guys also making a transition. Pat Spence, uh, former fullback, who we hadn't seen uh, last year, I, I believe. He went from fullback to dummy half. And Dom Destratus, he's gone from edge to dummy half. And both of them actually look pretty good at, at dummy half, honestly. Yeah, well, Pat was injured last year. He had a, a nasty leg injury that kept him out pretty much for the season. But in talking about uh, Pat and uh, and also uh, Dom being in there in the uh, dummy half position, I think the match had a lot to do with who wasn't playing mm-hmm. as much as who was playing because there were quite a few Eels players that were on the sideline who will be um, playing in the season proper. And, uh, mate, maybe you can just go through quickly some well, of the players I, that were missing. I, I jotted down Matt Arthur, Blaise Talangi, Richard Penasini, Luke Maroon, new recruit Rebon, LeBron Tuala, sorry. Um, and I'm probably missing a player or two there as well. So they're missing some serious strike. Uh, you're talking about a couple of members of the spine there who are well advanced beyond their grade. Uh, Richard Penasini, who could very much be a breakout player this year, uh, he was looking very good at the back end of 2022. And Luke Maroon, who was very good in the Harold Matthews last year on the wing, as well as LeBron Twala, who we're all very excited to see on the field. So Eels without some considerable strike there. Dogs were a good outfit. And even then, like I was very impressed with those middle forwards. This Sam Tulvati was violent. Like the the hits he was putting down, the runs he was doing for a guy that's a year young in SG ball was very impressive. That partnership with Lance Foleen was going to be good for the Eels. And then on the bench, Kobe Herford uh, played both physical and also was able to pass deep into the line. That's what set up one of our tries uh, down the left edge. And then Jack Burrows, who's a big lump of prop forward. He, uh, you know, t- entirely the wrong name. You know, Burrows should be a dummy half, right? A little nugget getting in low. But he's a towering bookend that did some good stuff on the field there. So we're going to have a good platform in the middle. And whenever you've got a good platform in the middle, you can be competitive. And I think once you start slotting in those extra pieces and tuning up the rest of the team 60s, I mean, I'm not going to install them as premiership favourites or, you know, a top contender, but I think this is a team that can do some work this year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, mate, I think that's probably a good point to yes, sir. end our first podcast of 2023 on. Uh, we will start to get into more regular podcasts as we get closer to the season proper. Don't forget that we will be covering the junior representative season as usual. So uh, stick with the, uh, with the tip sheet and uh, with TCT in general. And, mate, uh, welcome back. Yeah, welcome back, everyone. Catch you guys in the next episode. Bye.